Well, George Steinbrenner was the longtime owner of the New York Yankees, and he was a bit of a traditionalist, maybe we'd say a little bit stodgy in certain ways, certainly conservative in many of his views. And in the 1970s, 1973 in particular, uh, this, is the, this is the hippie generation, right? And, and Steinbrenner became frustrated as he was watching the national anthem be played and he saw some of his players with hair that was covering their numbers. And he said, not on my team. And he put in place a policy that is still in place for the New York Yankees. It reads like this, all players, coaches, and male executives are forbidden to display any facial hair other than mustaches, except for religious reasons, and scalp hair, I haven't heard that terminology before, scalp hair may not be grown below the collar. This sounds like my Christian school growing up, right? Uh, but this is the, the, the culture that George Steinbrenner wanted to establish uh, for his team. And as the owner, right, it was his prerogative to do just that. I remember being at Cedarville University uh, back in the, the 80s, and uh, there were certain requirements about dress code. We couldn't wear blue jeans until after uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon uh, because there were prospective employers on campus, and they wanted to create a certain environment on campus that was professional. Uh, Take it or leave it, it was the, the, the mandate that came from the top. It's the culture that they wanted to create. It was the house rules uh, if you were going to go to school there. Many companies, of course, established certain requirements to create corporate culture. And, of course, the same is true for families. Parents establish boundaries and values that they feel are important. In our house, uh, you know, it's family dinner time and, and how we gather uh, and connect at the end of the day. Uh, there's there's certain, certain other things in terms of responsibilities that our kids are expected to carry out in the course of any given week. And these are just things that we think are important. We want them to be priorities in our house. And here in First Timothy, I'm going to suggest to you that we find God's house rules. Uh, we find the rules that he has established for his family. And uh, that's uh, really was captured in the, the passage that Benjamin read for us this morning. And that's what we want to consider as we look to God's Word. So we are continuing to study uh, Route 66, uh, road trip through the Bible, considering the 66 books of the Bible in a 52-week calendar year. It means we're moving very quickly, considering major themes and overviews, looking at entire books in one setting. Uh, we've considered along the way uh, the great doctrine of creation and how God created all that exists and how he created humans in his image to bear his reflection, to carry out his work, to be his representatives in the world. Of course, we read about the fall of humanity into sin and into death, the dilemma uh, of Adam and Eve being put out of the garden, cut off from access to the tree of life. And then we see God's unfolding plan of redemption, his uh, promise to make things right, to send a deliverer who would one day uh, reverse the curse and who would make all things new, who would defeat the enemy, uh, Satan. And so this is the gospel, this is the good news. 
Uh, we're at a point in the story here looking at the little blue section at, on the bottom shelf. And these are Paul's letters to the first century churches. And uh, these books are of tremendous value to us uh, because they help us understand how we are to live as God's redeemed people. God is redeeming a people for his name. He's extended the offer of salvation but those who have received that offer of salvation, who have become part of his family, who have been reconciled to him, he has called them to live in a certain way. And Paul's letters are invaluable in helping us understand how we are to live as God's people. Now we've noted that each one of these little letters that Paul wrote had a backstory. There are real people involved, there's a real setting, there's real cities, real demographics. And so we want to pause here to consider the backstory of 1 Timothy. While most of Paul's letters were written to churches, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus were written to young pastors. Matter of fact, these letters are often called the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters because they address the care of souls and the orderly conduct of God's people in the church. God is, uh, Paul here is, is mentoring uh, some young church leaders and helping them to really have a clear sense of their task and their role in the church. Timothy uh, lived in the city of Lystra. This was his hometown. This is modern-day Turkey. Uh, he was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. So he brought a, a unique dynamic um, uh, uh, in terms of, of sort of spanning the, the, the ethnicities a little bit there. Uh, Acts 16 unpacks a little bit of Timothy's background. In his early youth, he was influenced by the godly lives of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Uh, by the way, don't underestimate the power and the influence of a godly mom or a godly grandma. Right? We know God's desire and intent for men to take leadership in their families. Uh, that's not always possible, for one. But even when uh, that, that uh, father uh, is not maybe engaged in the way that he should be, uh, a mom can have a tremendous influence on her kids. And certainly that's a big part of Timothy's story here. Paul referred, often referred to Timothy as his true son, and he raised Timothy in the faith. So again, uh, Timothy had a father, a biological father, but the sense is that his father was not a believer, was not a follower of Christ. And so uh, Paul was Timothy's spiritual father, his father in the faith, and he draws attention to this often. Paul established the church in Lystra, on his first missionary journey. And presumably, this is where Timothy first encountered the gospel and became a follower of Jesus. When Paul returned to Lystra on his second missionary journey, he heard rave reviews about this young man, Timothy, who had, uh, was very serious about his faith and uh, was, a, was a young man of high character and so Paul made the decision then and there to take Timothy with him as his co-worker, as his apprentice, uh, on his second missionary journey. 
Uh, I also want to just draw attention to this as well. Having biological children is a wonderful thing, but there are other ways of having children. Paul here has this perspective of uh, reproducing himself in the lives of of Timothy and others. And uh, that's a wonderful opportunity uh, that we call discipleship, right? We are called to that to that task. So uh, I, I think there's, there's a, a word of great encouragement there for us as well in terms of what it really is to, to, uh, yeah, to have a vision for discipleship. Paul and Timothy had different and complementary ministries. Paul was always forging ahead into new regions where the gospel was not known. Timothy was often left behind to strengthen and establish local churches in Berea, Thessalonica, Corinth, and Ephesus. So they did different things. Paul was always on the edge. He was always looking to take the gospel where it had not been proclaimed. And again, on at least four different occasions, Timothy was left behind to clean it up. Oh, that's not true. But Paul sometimes, I mean, he just came in, boom, and he's establishing churches. And then Timothy was, was, was the one who then would come in and help establish leaders and maybe help the church write its constitution so it could conduct itself in an orderly way. Uh, they had to, to, to figure out uh, membership policies. And uh, we don't know all that was involved in that. But Timothy was the one who was doing this sort of foundational work uh, to kind of build uh, on what Paul had established. And I think it goes beyond just ministry function. I think if you peel back the onion a little bit, you find that Paul and Timothy were just wired very differently. Uh, Paul, again, was bold and brash and dogmatic. It almost seems like sometimes he's, he's looking for conflict at times. Uh, Timothy, on the other hand, was timid and uncertain and actually a bit sickly. Paul actually encourages him at one point to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. Uh, water in the ancient world was not always dependable. A lot of bacteria, and they would often mix water and wine to sort of clean the water and make it safe for drinking. But, but Timothy had something going on in his stomach. Maybe it was stress. Oh, we don't really know. Uh, but Paul had to sort of help him along. And Paul also had to encourage Timothy to be confident. He said, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Timothy... Uh, but a spirit of confidence and of a sound mind. Uh, he's sort of having to sort of challenge Timothy uh, to, to, to be bold. And so they're, they're both just wired differently, and yet they both play integral roles in the life of the early church. God uses type A personalities who are bold and brash and confident, and God uses introverts and people who uh, are, are wanting more to function behind the scenes, God uses us all. I find that really encouraging to just look at the contrast between Paul and Timothy and their unique contributions in the church. Timothy served faithfully. We do have several passages that sort of tell us the rest of the story about Timothy. Paul makes some phenomenal statements in Philippians 2. He says, I have no one else besides Timothy who is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the churches. Everyone's concerned about their own welfare, but not Timothy. Timothy's concerned about the welfare of the churches. What a tremendous statement. You get to the end of 2 Timothy, which is, which is Paul's last letter. He's writing it from Rome. He's awaiting execution. 
It's a heartfelt letter. And there at the end, he says, Timothy, come to me when you can. Sent, uh, and, and he says, uh, and bring the, the parchments with you and my cloak, my winter cloak. I mean, this gives you a sense of the type of relationship they had. Paul entrusted the parchments, which might have been his copies of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Maybe it was the copies of his letters that he had penned. But he entrusted them to Timothy for safekeeping. <laughs> uh, we just get some real insights. And Hebrews 13 tells us that Timothy had been imprisoned for the faith. He paid a significant price in his commitment for Christ. So uh, Timothy wasn't just uh, somebody who you know, was real excited and had a lot of youthful energy. He was a guy who finished the, the course and um, had impeccable character in his service for Christ. So, so this is the backdrop of Paul's letter to Timothy. Now I mentioned uh, at the outset again that, that Timothy is all about God's house rules. Uh, I want to just direct your attention again to the passage that Benjamin read because it so uh, summarizes Paul's intent for this letter. First uh, Timothy 3 verse 14, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. So this is why he's writing, so that Timothy will be able to instruct the people how to, to live as God's children within God's household. Right? It's kind of an interesting transition there in, in that section. It goes on in verse 16, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And then it gives this great declaration about Jesus and about the gospel. You're like, what is Paul doing here? I tend to think that Paul is saying we have a really unthinkably great and awesome Savior. And we ought to live like it. <laughs> I mean... God has done an amazing work of redemption, and that calls on us to live, again, as God's redeemed people. <laughs> so I, I think that little section at the end of chapter 3 really encapsulates what Paul is doing here in this letter. So uh, four areas I want to look at here that, that the text directs our attention to that uh, ought to set the stage for us in terms of how we live as God's children. One of those areas is doctrine in chapter 1. First of all, Paul identifies diversions from faith. Notice chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So Paul had been here in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, the capital city. He went on to Macedonia. He went into Europe. But he left Timothy behind because there was trouble in the church in Ephesus. Okay, there was some false teaching that had begun to crop up. And so he's asking Timothy to stay there and address that false teaching. 
Now, we don't know all the ins and outs of what the false teaching was. We can sort of piece it together as we look um, through the letter. But the bottom line is that this false teaching was contrary to God's work, which is by faith. See it right there at the end of verse 4. So God had established, has established, a way of salvation that is to be received through faith. We don't earn our way to God. Uh, We don't do good works in order to gain standing and acceptance with Him. We receive God's salvation as a gift through humble faith. And so Paul is telling Timothy, there's a lot of these other little strains of teaching out there that are undermining the gospel of God's grace. And I want you to be on the lookout, right? My church is to be characterized, to be the the, the buttress of truth, right? As as, uh, Benjamin read in the text there, we're to hold the truth high, the truth of God's grace revealed in the gospel. So he's, he's cautioning them against any type of teaching that would undermine God's grace. During a British conference on comparative religions, uh, experts from around the world had gathered to talk about what, if anything, was distinctive about the Christian religion. And the debate went on for some time, back in the 20th century, until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. And he heard what they were arguing about, and he responded quite simply, Oh, that's easy. It's grace. This is what sets apart the Christian religion from all other religions. And after some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love, and Philip Yancey recounts this in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, They reflected that the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. So it's grace. And yet there's always the tendency to allow other things to creep in. Other requirements. Other forms of human merit. And Paul is saying, look, in my church, in God's church, we must safeguard the doctrine of God's grace. In verses 8 through 11, Paul addresses the purpose of the law. Apparently some of the false teaching was centered on the law. Maybe suggesting that You had to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved. We know that Paul, in most every uh, one of his missionary stops, encountered opposition from the Jews who wanted to assert the law as a means of salvation. And so, uh, once again, it seems that that's in view here. And Paul says here in verse 8, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. So Paul says the law is really good. It came from God himself. But let's think about its purpose. It was never to be a means of salvation. The law was given to reveal our sin. To break our pride. 
to bring us to the end of ourselves. That's what the law was meant for, not, not to give you some basis for pride and self-accomplishment. So he has to address the place of the law alongside of the gospel of God's grace, right? And then Paul shares personal testimony. Uh, he puts himself forward as a case study here in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So Paul says, look, let me just tell you a little bit about my story, right? I'm a Jew. I, I, I grew up as an observant Jew. I was a Pharisee. I was meticulous in my observance of the law, and I came to realize that I was a sinner, that I couldn't do it. I couldn't meet the demands of a holy and righteous God. I had sinned and rebelled against him. But God's grace was poured out on me, and Christ has come to save sinners. This is the formula. And so he, again, puts himself forward as a case study. As a matter of fact, he uses the terminology here of example. He said, my, my case is, let, let it be an example for all of you. That you see the pattern of how people are saved, not by their accomplishments, but by grace through faith. And then finally, he closes chapter 1 with a cautionary tale. He appeals to Timothy again to confront false teaching that has infiltrated the church. Paul likens it to warfare. He says to Timothy, fight the good fight. Contend for the faith that has once for all been entrusted to the saints. And Paul even references two of the false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, there in verse 20, who Paul says, I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So Paul had already addressed some of the false teaching in the church. He had already put these two individuals out of the church. But now he charges Timothy to continue the work, to be vigilant, to, don't let down his, to not let down his guard. Right? So, so doctrine, this whole, God has established a definitive path of salvation by grace through faith, and the local church must guard the doctrine of God's grace from distortion. Well, this is certainly one of, the, one of the things that ought to be a hallmark of the church, that we are an outpost for the pure, unadulterated gospel of God's free grace. <laughs> right, th- this, this was uh, such an important thing. Paul begins here with the theme of doctrine. As we continue to think about God's house rules, he also has some things to say about worship. How we are to conduct ourselves when we gather corporately for worship. He begins with this whole area of public prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 
This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So corporate prayer is put at the head of the list. Matter of fact, Paul says, I urge then, first of all, uh, this is sort of the first item that he wants to talk about with them. He wants to call them to prayer, to be a people of prayer. And I find it somewhat encouraging that Paul has to urge Timothy to make prayer a priority. We sometimes have this picture of people in the Bible, right, who just... Everything just happened automatically for them. They were just godly, right? There was no effort. There's no work involved. There's no discipline. Paul has to urge Timothy. You know, prayer doesn't always just flow naturally. I know that from personal experience. Uh, maybe you have discovered that too. Uh, prayer involves discipline. It's something we have to, to work at. And so Paul is urging Timothy to pray. I like to think that maybe, uh, thinking in, in the context here, the broader context of First Timothy and this whole idea of the household of God, that God, the Father, wants to hear from his children. So I have a, a daughter who's now studying at Grand Canyon University in Phoenix. And we had to have some conversations early on about communication. We want to hear from her, right? We want to know how she's doing. We want to know if, if, if she has concerns, things we could be praying about, right? God wants to hear from us. And so Paul just puts this as a priority that the church be engaged in prayer. Uh, Paul addresses the scope of prayer. He says that they ought to be praying for all people. And Paul mentions one group of people in particular who would likely be overlooked in prayer and that is kings. The Roman rulers at this time were openly and violently opposed to the gospel. And Paul says, I want you to pray for them. Publicly. In your gatherings. To pray for ungodly leaders. Now, we might think, and we're praying for them that they would come to know Christ, that they would be saved. And I think that would be a good prayer. But I think Paul's actually praying for something a little bit differently here. His heart is for them and for their salvation. But notice the one purpose that he gives for why he wants them to pray for them. There in verse 2 of chapter 2, that or in order that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness so when we pray for people we take a certain posture toward them don't we uh, my relationship with the government and governmental leaders even ungodly ones should not be adversarial now there are times when things are promoted that i'm going to speak against because they go contrary to god's word and god's standards for us right but at its root, my relationship with leaders, secular leaders, even ungodly ones, should not be adversarial. I ought to be living with a posture of peace and quietness. And then Paul goes on to say, so that all people can be saved. 
Right? I don't want to create obstacles for the gospel. The gospel itself might offend someone, but I don't want to offend them. Right? Because of my stubbornness or my anger or whatever it might be. So Paul's hitting on this element of public prayer and how critical it is for the advance of the gospel. Our lives should make the gospel attractive. Also in this arena of worship, uh, he talks about gender. Specifically gender and the church gathered, right? Gender in the context of worship. Paul issues specific instructions to both men and women in the church. Verse 8, chapter 2. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Men are to take the lead in public prayer everywhere or in every place. This is referring to the assembled church. Every time the church is gathered, I want men to to pray. Uh, They're to pray with holy hands or a holy life. The hands represent what I do Monday through Saturday, right? And when I come to the Lord to pray, I ought to come with a holy life, uh, consecrated to the Lord. And Paul specifically cites a couple of sins that he wants them to be aware of. Anger and disputing. Ouch. Right? These are problem areas for men, I'm going to suggest to you. When we encounter evil or injustice, our tendency is to get angry. But this is not the response of the godly man. We are to be people who exude grace. He said that he wants us all to lead peaceful lives. And this is certainly true of those men who would represent the church in prayer. Women, beginning there in verse 9, women are encouraged to dress in a certain way with modesty and appropriateness. Paul encourages them to adorn themselves, to order themselves, to make themselves beautiful. I think it's a nod here to uh, women as the fairer sex, right? The beautiful gender. And yet he says, don't make yourself beautiful or adorn yourself with the latest styles or some extravagant fashion. But instead, adorn yourself with good deeds. Appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So, when you come to worship, you call yourself a worshiper of God, your intent should not be to draw attention to yourself. Right? That, 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 that's incongruous. <laughs> either, either I'm seeking to draw attention to God or I'm seeking to draw attention to myself. So dress in a way that's consistent with your desire to see people worship God. Right? Conduct yourself in that way. He also encourages women to take a supporting role in the leadership and teaching ministry of the church. A woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. And Paul is clear here in verse 14 of chapter 2 that these gender roles are rooted in creation itself. So Paul's not necessarily reacting to some problem some uh, particular woman who had 
been causing problems in the church, and now Paul's having to react to that. No, Paul is going back to creation pattern. Adam was created first, then Eve. There's something in the very fabric of creation that indicates God's desire for men to take roles of leadership, particularly in the preaching uh, and oversight ministries of the church. This is often called complementarianism, right? Men and women are equal before God, but they have been given distinct roles within the church and within the family. So Paul unpacks this, particularly, again, as it relates to the church gathered. And then he deals with church leadership. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, he identifies two offices in the local church, overseers and deacons. The overseers, also called pastors or elders, are entrusted with spiritual authority. An overseer must manage his own family well. This is one of the indicators that he will be able to lead God's family well. Deacons are to help care for the temporal needs of the church. They are servants. It's interesting, the qualifications for elders and deacons are largely synonymous. It's all character-based. The only real distinction is one of giftedness. Uh, The elder must be able to teach. And so it's it's not uh, an issue of... uh, not distinguished in any other way, but, but by their giftedness. Uh, church leadership is not easy. It often involves stress and sacrifice. And I've been so thankful for the leaders in this local church that I get to serve alongside. Uh, it is truly a, a gift. Um, I think sometimes we think that it, you know, I'll serve in leadership begrudgingly if I have to, if there's no one else to fill the spot. Uh, I think that's a, that's a bad way to view it. Um, notice what, what Paul says here about leadership in the church. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to an overseer, to be an overseer, desires a noble task, a beautiful task, a, an inspiring task, a A valuable task. And then even the word to the deacons at the end of chapter 3, verse 13. Those deacons who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. That in some way your service will serve to strengthen your faith. And in some sense God will honor, will give good standing, commendation to those who serve behind the scenes. And so, wonderful affirmation here about uh, leadership in the church. So, that's under this heading of of worship. And then relationships. Uh, this uh, This is a wonderful section here where Paul begins to help them think about how they relate to one another. Again, his house rules as it relates to relationships. He talks about the the task and the responsibility of warning each other about sin. So in chapter 4, he talks again about the false teachers. And he even talks specifically about the the deceptive nature of their teaching. That sometimes people don't 
even realize what they're subscribing to and before it's too late and then they're caught up in some dangerous teaching. So Paul says to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. So he's, he's talking about the importance of, of confronting sin and helping people who are maybe trapped in sin. And there's even very practical instruction at the end of this section in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So when you go about this task of challenging someone or trying to, to confront false teaching, do so carefully, do so with grace. If you're going to talk to someone who's older than you, an older gentleman, uh, talk to them like you would talk to your father. Hopefully that's good, right? Hopefully that, that reflects an honor. And uh, yeah, it just has great practical wisdom for how we speak to one another and uh, safeguard one another from sin. Uh, he addresses a section here on caring for widows. Quite a lengthy section. Widows uh, were vulnerable, particularly in the ancient world, and the church had a very clear responsibility to provide and care for and protect those who were in vulnerable positions. And so Paul outlines what it means to be a true widow with no one else to care for you and then unpacks the church's responsibility there. He has a section on compensating elders. Chapter 5, how to treat elders well, uh, church leaders well. 5.17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So Paul actually goes back to an Old Testament concept there in the law uh, if you have an ox that's out there pulling your cart and you're bringing in the, the harvest, it would be cruel to put a muzzle on the ox. You ought to allow the ox, the ox is helping you bring in all this, this grain, right? You ought to allow that ox every once in a while to reach down and take a big mouthful, right? Uh, that, that ox should be able to share in uh, the, the, the benefits and the proceeds of the work. And in a similar way, those who are serving in church leadership ought to be remunerated and given a share of uh, those proceeds as it were so uh, he talks about how uh, a person should not should not uh, uh, speak against an elder should not slander the character of an elder with unfounded accusations but if an elder does do something and the matter is confirmed by two or three witnesses then they ought to be clearly confronted publicly so he goes through this whole section of sort of how to relate to those who are in leadership uh, in the church. Respecting authorities, a very interesting section here. We're not going to spend much time on it, but Paul urges slaves to treat their masters with respect. Now, why would Paul in any way endorse the oppressive institution of slavery? 
Paul is more concerned about the reputation of the gospel than about personal rights. For us in our culture, personal rights are everything. No one's going to trample on my rights. Paul is more concerned about the advance of the gospel. So he says, don't, don't be ugly. Don't be a jerk. If you, if you are a slave and you've had to sell yourself because of your debts, and then, then be a good slave. Function well. Live a beautiful life. Right? Again, all of this so that the gospel can have free course. And there are no, we don't put up obstacles for the gospel. Final section here on money. Very practical section. Uh, Paul talks about the allure of money. Uh, this is what was motivating some of the false teachers. And he talks about the love of money, right? Being the root of, of all sorts of evil. So there's a, there's, a, there's a slipperiness to our money and possessions. Oftentimes the things that we possess have a way of possessing us. If we're not careful, they gain inroads into our lives so he calls them to flee from the love of money. Uh, don't mess around with it. Don't play around the edges of it. Recognize it for what it is as a real danger area for us. And then he closes uh, encouraging uh, those who have resources, those who have more than they need for their basic needs, to be generous. Uh, that seems to be the antidote for materialism right, is to be generous. And it's interesting, too, Paul actually encourages a treasure mentality. He says, don't, don't just gather together uh, money and resources that will be gone when you die, but by giving generously, you can invest in the life to come. You can store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? So he, he encourages us to, 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 to gather wealth, but he he says that that true wealth uh, is, is what is stored up in heaven. So Timothy's given this sacred trust to convey these things to the church so that they might live as the household of God. And those instructions, those house rules have now been passed down to us. May God give us grace to live as his children, as his household, as his family.